0: Go ahead and take a seat and take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 15, Judges chapter 15. We began a couple of weeks ago looking at the life of Samson, started in chapter 13 where it looked like we finally got ourselves a good savior, a good judge, a good deliverer and introduced along with Manoah and his wife to this new deliverer, Samson, We have high hopes for this man and what he's going to accomplish for the glory of God, but he is going to let us down. He already did that in chapter 14. He took a Philistine wife, which he was not supposed to do. Uh, We saw the beauty of the mystery of God's sovereignty on display, even in that choice. God said, I'm going to use Samson, and we can either do that with Samson obeying me, or I can still use him with him disobeying me. I, I don't need him to do something I can use him either way. And so God's sovereignty is on display, even in Samson choosing this Philistine woman. On the way to the wedding feast, a lion runs up and Samson rips the, the lion apart. Uh, remember the analogy, as one does with a young goat. So apparently young goats are being ripped apart constantly. And goes to the wedding feast as he's going, he sees honey in the body of this dead lion, and he takes some, he eats it, which was not lawful with the Nazarite vow that he had made. You were not allowed to touch any dead creature, uh, it would be considered unclean. He did it anyway. He doesn't seem to care about this Nazarite vow much. Makes up a riddle to stump the Philistines. Remember, he said, uh, out of the eater came something uh, to eat, and out of the eater came, out of this dead carcass came something sweet. They can't figure out what he's saying because, I mean, who would have guessed that it was honey growing in the body of a dead lion. And so they call upon Samson's new wife, their own Philistine sister, and say, go to him and force him to give you the answer so that we don't have to give him the 30 suits that we were going to have to give to him. Samson, in an ironic foreshadowing of what's to come with Delilah... Finally is fed up with his wife's nagging and says, fine, I'll tell you. Tells the secret, the answer to the riddle. She tells the Philistines, and the Philistines say, we know the answer. You owe us 30 suits now. And Samson says, the beautiful poet that he is, if you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't know my riddle now, which is the uh, precursor to Dr. Seuss's book, How Now, Brown Cow? (laughs) So he takes 30 Philistines. He goes off to a city, takes 30 Philistines, kills them, takes their garments, gives them at the feet of these men that were a part of his wedding feast and says, here you go. And he walks away, and his now father-in-law sees this and says, I'm not going to give my daughter to you. You have an anger problem, and so I'm going to just take her back and give her to somebody else. finds out that he's going to give them to his best man. So chapter 14, off of the heels of chapter 13, where we think everything's going to go well, chapter 14, everything is going very badly. And it's only going to get worse. (laughs) It just keeps getting worse. But as it gets darker, the glory of God is seen all the more brightly, and the sovereignty of God is seen, even in the midst of, and especially in the midst of human depravity. So to that end, let me ask the Lord to help us see those things, in our chapter this morning, and then we will dive in together. Father, we thank you for your precious, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. No errors. You breathed it out. It's your word to us, and as we speak, we are hearing your voice because you have spoken clearly, and we know we can trust your word. It will not fail us. It does not fail itself. And this morning, yet again, we will see the glory present in your sovereignty on display in the midst of human sinfulness. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold these things, wonderful things from your law, which we cannot see on our own with our fleshly minds. We need the gift of illumination to understand exactly why you wrote these words and to be changed by them this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to split chapter 15. You can see it's at verse, uh, verses 1 through 20. It's only 20 verses here, but we're going to split it up into three sections. The first, we're going to call the Philistines Inflamed, and that's both inflamed with anger and aflamed with actual fire. So we will pick it up in verse 1, and it starts right off the bat. But after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go to into my wife, into her room, but her father did not let him enter. Samson must be thinking to a certain extent. I may have overreacted with the whole they figured out the answer to the riddle thing. I may have overreacted. So I'm, I've got to have something in my hands, uh, present when I knock on the door. Apparently, in lieu of flowers back then, you would offer, here we are an, again, a young goat. So here's a young goat. I'm so sorry for calling you a, a young cow. Um, please enjoy my goat. Um, <laughs> You can see, again, Samson's sensuality on display, not just in a sexual sense, although it plays itself out here, but also in a, in a very the, the truest definition of that word. He loves what is, uh, he, he can understand what his sense is. Here he says, I would like to go into my wife, into her room. It's a very uh, sexual overtones to that statement. It's not something that you say to your father-in-law, but he says that he doesn't care. He wants to get his own way. But his father says no. Her father says, I really thought, verse 2, I really thought that you hated her intensely. Hmm, what gave you that idea? When he killed 30 people, storms in, calls you a young cow and leaves. I really thought you hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Companion is the word for best man. By the way, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Please let her be yours instead. I just have to imagine that the young younger sister's standing there, like, gee, thanks, Dad, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for. Like, nobody's coming out of this story well. Like, this is just depravity on display. Everybody has their feelings hurt. Nobody ends up winning. And Samson, the sensuous man that we know him to be, you would think he would say, "Okay, I'll go with somebody prettier." But he has something even greater than just I, I desire beauty. The deeper desire is, I get my way. So you don't tell me what to do. I get the way that I want to get, my way or the highway. So he says, no. Verse 3, Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. This time I'm going to be justified in my revenge. Very interesting that he said that because maybe he's thinking, along with the young goat that he just gave to his wife, ex-wife now, Maybe he was thinking, I went a little overboard, and what I did wasn't fully justified, but now that my wife has been stolen away from me, now I am justified, and I'm going to do them harm. How is he going to do them harm? He rips apart lions just with his bare hands and apparently went to Ashkelon and just killed 30 people. How is he going to do harm this time? If I'm Samson, I think I'm a violent man. I can just go kill people. But no, this time, verse four, Samson decides to catch 300 foxes and to take torches and turn the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle and tie the two tails together. This is one of those, I cannot wait to see the DVD in heaven on this one. What? I have so many questions. First of all, why does Samson decide foxes is the best way to go? Why does he hear revenge in his mind? I want revenge foxes is a great idea. I don't know why you go straight to foxes. I don't know how you catch foxes. How do you catch a fox? Is there such thing as a fox collar like you do with a duck? Like Is there a, is there a fox sound that when you blow the fox collar, foxes come running? Where are 300 foxes? I didn't see one fox when I was in Israel. 300 just show up. And how do you catch them and tie them together? Are there marks on his arms from the foxes saying no? Is this like God's just saying, hang on, foxes, we've got a plan for you? Um, I have so many questions about how this is happening. And there's even an ironic play on words in the word fox itself. The uh, The Hebrew word for fox has a cognate which is a torch or a flame. So much so, it was used back then, so much so that in the Greek language foxes were literally called torch tails because their tails looked like they were flames. So maybe that's what he, maybe there's irony. We find out often, this man's a very poetic man. So maybe this is poetic justice, like to send fox tails with, uh, or torch tails with torches literally on their tails throughout the wheat. How? I don't know what he's thinking, but he sees it's harvest time. Verse one tells us this is the wheat harvest. And this will be the way to get revenge. So, he catches them, verse 5, when he had set fire to the torches, he releases the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines. thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and the groves. He burns all of it. And the Philistines say, who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and they burned her and her father with fire. If you remember from last week, that's exactly what they said they were going to do. They told this woman, we will burn you and your father in your house, we'll burn it down, we'll kill you if you do not tell us the answer to this riddle. And now this is actually happening. This is the wife of Samson. This is his father-in-law. And they destroy them. Verse 7, Samson said to them, Since you acted like this, I will surely take revenge on you. And after that, I'm done. After that, I will quit but I am going to pay you back. And so he does just that. He struck them, verse 8, ruthlessly with a great slaughter. And he went down and he lived in the cleft of the rock of Edom. He struck them, my Bible says ruthlessly. Some of your translations might say limb from limb. Literally in the Hebrew, it's leg on thigh, which means that he tore them up so much you couldn't tell what was the bottom part of the leg, or the top part of the leg. You couldn't, it, this is massive bloodshed. Now, remember from last week, it would be easy to think, wow, poor Philistines. But clearly you can see here, and we saw it last week as well, the Philistines are not innocent people. So don't feel bad for the Philistines. They are guilty people getting what they deserve. But, please also remember, Samson is not guiltless in what he's doing. Samson's anger, although his anger and his agenda is overlapping with the agenda of a sovereign God, Samson's anger itself isn't necessarily holy. So we don't say that just because God's using Samson, that must mean that Samson's actions are righteous. We can't say that. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil... God meant the exact same act that you meant for evil. Uh, This is Joseph speaking to his brothers, throwing me into the pit, selling me into slavery, lying about my death. What you meant for evil, that very same act God meant for good. So Samson's not off the hook for his sinful anger. This shows us the world where everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. You hurt me, I hurt you back. This also shows us the peril of being God's enemy because the Philistines are the enemies of God and they will be destroyed. God said, I've given them time. They have not repented. They will be destroyed. And so God delivers through the anger of Samson. He strikes them. He runs away. That leads us to point number two on our outline. We've seen Philistines inflamed, enraged with anger, and their wheat fields are burned up. Now, number two, Israel's shame. This is verses nine through fourteen. Israel's shame. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we've come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. We want to bind Samson to kill him. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom, and they said to Samson, Don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? That's a strange statement because Samson did nothing to the Israelites. Samson did everything to the Philistines. He's killed a lot of Philistine people already, and the Israelites say that was an attack on us why? Why is this an attack on them? And he specifically says, no, 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 I I did to them as they have done to me. I'm just simply paying them back. I'm just giving them a little bit of revenge. But why are they saying, you've hurt us? There's something very interesting to see in this section of scripture. We see that the degeneration of the office of judge, because judges, what did they used to do? They used to say, I'm going to get the ball rolling here on deliverance and then all of Israel come behind me and mop up everybody else. I'm just going to get it initiated. Remember, Ehud. I'm just going to kill the king and then everybody else just come in and and mop everybody up. And here, Samson's doing all the dirty work and Israel says, we don't want any part in this. In fact, you're wrecking our day. Samson, you're ruining our lives. And they... Don't like him so much that they say in verse 12, we've come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. We want to take you captive and give you to the people that you're supposed to be delivering us from. We're going to deliver you to them. And Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me. Just don't, you can do whatever you want to me. Just you don't kill me. And they said, no, we won't. Verse 13, but we will bind you fast and we will give you into their hands, but we will not kill you. Nobody can miss the irony there. No, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to give you to them so they can kill you. But we won't do it. So they bound him with two new ropes, and they brought him up from the rock. This is terrifyingly close to where we live. In our hearts, I think that we do exactly what Israel just did with their deliverer. How many times do we, as people who bear the name of God, as God's people, just as Israel was, how often would we rather just live in peace with our sin than make war and be delivered from it? We'd rather cut down the rescuer that God's given to us to deliver us from sin than to confront the worldliness in our own souls. Here in these verses are a people who have just decided bondage is okay. Slavery is fine. And they can no longer imagine anything beyond the status quo of their slavery. They think deliverance from their slavery to a pagan nation, they think deliverance is a threat to their peace. No, no, no. Just let's keep everything the way it is. We're fine. Everything's fine. We see this with Moses and the Israelites. When Moses says, I'm going to deliver you, God's going to deliver you through me. And he turns the Nile River into blood. And now things get a little bit harder for the Israelites because the Egyptians say now you have to make double the bricks with less the amount of um, water and, and the ability to make them as quickly. And they turn on Moses. How dare you try to deliver us? We were just fine without you stepping in. One commentator says it this way. It's always a dark day in the history of God's people when they are content to allow God's enemies to hold sway. Something's wrong with us when we no longer despise our true enemies. Such enmity is the gift of God. In the wake of our initial faithlessness, God declared that he was imposing enmity between the serpent seed and the woman seed. This divisiveness, this hostility came from God himself. He was not going to allow even his fallen creatures to cuddle up in the bosom of evil. The maker of heaven and earth refused to walk away from Eden, just shrugging his shoulders and muttering, well, you win some, you lose some. No, he is this stubborn God who will set all creation ablaze with holy war in order to have a seed and a people for himself. God's a a jealous God. He's making war with your sin, and he's pleading with you to make war with your sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. He came with an agenda to destroy the devil's works. And how often do we say, just like the Israelites, you know what, we're fine with the devil's works, just, we don't really need a deliverer here, we're okay. We're at peace with our sin. Nothing's really going to change. We're commanded to hate evil. Uh, Psalm chapter 97, verse 10, hate evil all you who love the Lord. Psalm chapter 139, verses 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. They speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate all those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They've become my enemies. This doesn't mean that we go around in crusades killing people that don't believe in Jesus. This means that we who believe in Jesus make war with the members of our flesh that still have the last vestiges of sin in them. Again, one commentator says, Whether it's the evil and sin within us or some form of it outside of us in temptation, God does not call us to negotiate with sin and evil but to wage war on them, to nurse a holy hatred toward them in all of their multicolored forms, We are near hopeless when we began to adopt Israel's slogan. It's always been this way, and how can we expect anything to change? That's where they are, and they turn on their deliverer. The the irony of this chapter, that Samson was raised up by God to deliver them from the Philistines, and they say, we need to deliver you to the Philistines because we just want to be at peace with our enemies. So Samson says, he he sees through it a little bit. God's going to give me strength. He can give me strength. Just you don't kill me. I can deliver myself with the help of God. So verse 14, and you know this section. When they come to Lehi, the Philistines shout as they met him. We got him. We finally got him. They're excited. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that the ropes were on his arms as a flax that is burned with fire and his bonds just dropped from his hands. And he found a fresh Jawbone of a donkey. Fresh means um, not yet corrupted with death. So this donkey has just died, but the teeth are still in this jawbone. And he rips it out, and he kills a thousand men with it. There's no need for the author of Judges to go into any gory detail in verse 15. Samson slaughters a thousand people. He has delivered Israel from that which Israel didn't even want to be delivered. No, 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 we're, we're at peace with the Philistines. We're okay. Don't, don't cause waves here. Don't make any waves. And Samson kills a thousand men. He does it by picking up this jawbone of a donkey that had died, once again, completely despising his Nazarite vow. He's fine with drinking. He's fine with touching dead things. The only thing he's not fine with, as of yet, is cutting his hair, but that's going to happen in chapter 16. And after killing all these people, verse 16, Samson decides to write a poem about it, because I think that you just write poems to commemorate the occasion. So he sits down and he writes, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Now, that doesn't rhyme in our Bibles. You read that and you go, this is clunky. In the original language, it actually does rhyme not only in an intellectual, logical way, it rhymes with a a rhyme scheme phonically. It it has two words that rhyme together that sound the same. So one one commentator says it this way to put it into a, a good rhyme scheme. With the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass, which that's good, but the one that I wrote down, this is my personal interpretation of Samson's poem. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I killed all these peeps. That's, that's, that's what Samson said. That's his actual words. It's in the Hebrew, peeps. So not only does he write a poem, then he also, as he's finished speaking, verse 17, he throws the jawbone from his hand, and he decides to rename the place Ramat Lehi, uh, which means a high place of a jawbone. So Jawbone Hill, if you will. He renames the place. Write a poem, rename the the town. We see Israel's shame on display in this section of scripture because we see Israel saying, we don't want to be delivered. And yet we see God not acquiescing to their request. He says, no, I promise deliverance and I'm going to deliver you through Samson. So we've number one, the Philistines are inflamed. We see number two, the Israelites' shame. And finally, number three, we see the Lord's fame. The Lord's fame. This is verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Then Samson became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, this is the very first time that we see Samson speaking to God, the God who has chosen him and empowered him. And it's ironic because listen to what he says. He says, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So on the one hand, he says, you did this work, you delivered me, and you were my help. But on the other hand, it it seems like in the same sentence, he says, and now I'm going to die because you're not helping me. Like, thanks for helping me, and now I'm going to die because you haven't helped me. Which is just the beauty of the stupidity of our sin, right? This is the stupidity of sin on display. We say it a lot here, sin makes you stupid. And this is a beautiful display of that. God, thank you so much for delivering me. And now thanks for letting me die because you haven't helped me. His sin is blinding him from the help that God provides. But God doesn't need somebody's perfect belief. God doesn't need somebody's perfect obedience. God splits the hollow place that's in Lehi so that water came out of it. He hears Samson. He sees his deliverer. He empowers him and he says, I don't need perfect faith. I don't even need perfect obedience. I'm just gonna split the rock and feed you and give you a drink. So he drinks, his strength returns, and he was revived, so he decides to rename it again. Like this is an even greater miracle. So let's rename it another En Hakor, which is now the the hill of water or the hill of springs. This is I've called out to God and He's understood and He's given me a, a spring of water. So caller's spring, we could say. The one who prays, his spring has been given. And it's interesting because my Bible says, which is in Lehi to this day? And that tells you how soon after these events this book was written. Now, you could go to Lehi to this day, and you can see where this happened. So this this was written very close after these events actually occurred. So, verse 20, he judged Israel. He delivered Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Even though Israel didn't want deliverance, God said, I'm going to bring deliverance through my chosen Deliverer. So, there you have chapter 15. Philistines inflamed, Israel shame, and this is all about the Lord's fame. What are we supposed to do with this? What is this chapter doing in the Bible? Somebody came out to me last week and said, I, I didn't know that Samson was married before Delilah, and I also didn't know that the book of Judges is so dark and weird. It's so weird. So you read this and you think, Why did you write this, God? Why is this in the Bible? What are we supposed to get out of this? What are we supposed to think differently about, feel differently about, understand differently? I think we can sum it up in two ways with chapter 15, and you'll see these points have been in all of these sermons in the book of Judges. Number one, in conclusion to chapter 15, usefulness does not equal faithfulness. Usefulness does not equal faithfulness. Your usefulness is not what pleases God. Your usefulness is chosen by God for however he wants to use it, but that doesn't mean that you're obeying him or being faithful to him. Usefulness isn't what pleases him. Allegiance to him and trusting in Jesus is what pleases him. It's possible to have, as a believer, it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, but be lacking in the fruit of the Spirit. You can say, look at all my giftings. Look at all of my giftedness. The gifts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12-14, through 14, the gifts that are given by the Spirit are gifts of doing. We do things under the power of the Spirit. The Spirit has given us the ability to do things. But the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, is all about being. Not about doing, it's about being. It's about who you are. So it's possible to have a lot of doing without being. And that's what we've seen in Samson's life this entire time. He's very useful to God but he's not faithful. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us as believers that we can do the same thing. We can have the, uh, the tongue of angels. We can, have, we can speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but if we don't have love, it doesn't profit anything. We can be useful, but without being faithful. So one of the things that I think we can take from chapter 15 is we need to recognize the distinction between gifts and fruit giftedness, and fruitfulness. Many people look at the gifts that they have and they think that that's proof that they're fine spiritually. Look at what I can do. Look at what I have done in God's name. But we must not mistake the operation of gifts for the growth of fruit. Just because you do good things for God does not mean that you are actually being faithful. And we have to be careful of the opposite, too. And we've talked about this before. If you're just this completely unknown, unheard of believer who doesn't have that many gifts and they're not being used in amazing, worldwide, famous ways, but you're being faithful, you're more pleasing to God. If you're just being faithful, completely obscure from the world, but you're being faithful, Just because the gifts that you have aren't doing, multiplying exponentially in their fruitfulness or in their giftedness doesn't mean that you're not being faithful. So how do we know if we are believing that being useful is equal to being faithful? How do we know if we're buying into that lie? I think there's two tests in this chapter. Test number one is, do you pray like Samson? I think if you pray like Samson, just calling out to God whenever you want something, just almost as a last resort, God, help me. You're asking God, just... Give me strength to do something instead of having an intimate relationship where you love him and you're asking him to change who you are, to be something different. If you're just saying, God, I want to be useful to you, give me power to be useful instead of saying, God, I want to be wholly yours. I want to love you more. I want to be somebody different, not just do something different. And the second test, not only do you pray like Samson, but are you alone like Samson is alone? Just... Flying over the banner of Samson's life is avoid Lone Ranger Christianity. Avoid just being all by yourself. Samson's notable for his aloneness. Not only does he never take advice from anybody, but he never works with others. He never builds teams. He never encourages other people around him to follow in his leadership. He's a one-man wrecking crew. Even with Israel here, he just says, you don't kill me. Bind me up and hand me over. I don't need you. You guys get away. I can do this on my own. That's a prescription. When you think you can live life on your own as a believer, that's a prescription for focusing on outward impressiveness. Look at all that I've done while suffering from internal disintegration. Nobody can see inside. No one's close enough to know my spiritual life or encourage me or challenge me or ask the hard questions. They just see, man, they are obviously doing great things for God. I don't need to ask those. And, and you do something, then you walk away. Just like Samson, you're alone. Do you pray like him? Are you alone like him? Those are just two tests of many that we could go to to see usefulness does not equal faithfulness. Usefulness is not what pleases God. Your allegiance to him and your trust in him is what pleases him. So simply, do you trust and obey Jesus? Do you trust and obey Jesus? Now, you might be sitting here saying, with as much in my heart as I know I have, I do trust And I want to obey, but I fail all the time. And that leads us to the second conclusion that we can make on Judges chapter 15, but also the entirety of the book of Judges and the entirety of the Bible. And it's this. Faithlessness cannot nullify grace. Faithlessness cannot nullify grace. Usefulness does not equal faithfulness. But if you look inside and you say, okay, then I'm going to focus on faithfulness. I'm going to focus on following Jesus. I'm going to focus on obeying him and doing what he asked me to do. You're going to see that you fail every day. Then you might say, okay, I'm I'm disregarding usefulness. I, I would like to be useful, but that's not the issue. I'm focusing on faithfulness, and now I see that my faithfulness is struggling. You might be let down. You might be disappointed. You might be despairing. That's why I think the book of Judges is in the Bible. Reminds us of people like Samson used by God completely faithless in so many ways and yet Samson as we read last week in Hebrews chapter 11 we're going to meet Samson in heaven. We're going to see Samson in heaven. Why? How? How can he make it? Is it because he's perfectly faithful? No. It's because Jesus is faithful. This is One of the reasons why we started studying the book of Judges at the very beginning, remember we had a a whole sermon on why study this book. One of the reasons why I wanted to study an Old Testament narrative is because I want us to recalibrate and realign our understanding of why the Bible exists. If you're reading narratives simply for the purpose of moralism, be like this, don't be like this. Are there examples in the Bible? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says the things in the Old Testament were given to us as an example, so they do give us examples. But if that's all you are looking to in these stories, honestly, you know what you turn into? You turn into a VeggieTales episode. <laughs> VeggieTales is great. My kids literally just watched it last night. But VeggieTales is incomplete because VeggieTales is looking at a story in the Bible moralistically. Have courage like Daniel, be bold like David. And it's just do this, be this but that's not what these accounts are for in the Bible. These accounts in the Bible are not first and foremost be like Samson, be like David, be like Daniel. These accounts first and foremost are see how gracious God is. Because honestly, what David are we supposed to be like? Am I going to show my children, okay, be like the David who fights Goliath, but then like let's sweep the Bathsheba part under the rug. Don't be like that, David. What David are we supposed to be like? Are there good things that David does? Are there good things that Daniel does? Absolutely. But no one in the Bible is perfect except for Christ. Nobody in the Bible lives perfectly. So if you're reading the Bible just with the lens of moralism, first of all, you're reading it incorrectly. Second of all, it's going to let you down. You're going to get to verses like this and go, well, this has no point. You're going to miss the entirety of what the Bible's for. The Bible does not teach you Do good, be good, and God will love you. Or if you're struggling, just try harder to not. That's not what the Bible says. What do Christians believe? Do we believe just live a good life, try your hardest, and God will reward you on how good you've been? No, the doctrine of grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. The doctrine of grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system. Every other religious system says your greatest problem is outside of you, and you have the the ability inside of you to fix this. Christianity says your greatest problem is inside of you, and you have no ability to fix it. And Jesus, who is outside, will fix the problem inside of you. He'll do all the work. You can't do any work. Now, does obedience bring blessing and does disobedience bring sorrow? Absolutely. And we see those in the scriptures. So I'm not saying, oh, we don't have to worry about sin. Just keep on sinning so grace may abound. No, what I'm saying is make sure that you understand if you are struggling with sin and you will struggle with sin as a believer, you're going to hate the sin that's inside of you that still resides in you. But don't look to your struggle with sin as somehow saying, well, then God must love me less. God does not love us based on our ability to be able to obey his commands. We keep his commands because he first loved us. You, you remember, we love him because he first loved us, right? First John tells us. We love him because he first loved us. And now that, since he's first loved us and we love him back, now Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But it's not, we keep his commandments so that he would love us, and then we love him we misunderstand that order, then we're going to misunderstand the gospel. Samson is in the hall of fame of faith. He's not in the hall of fame of faithfulness. That's why everybody in chapter 11, by faith they did this, by faith they did this, by faith in one who was faithful and is faithful. And that's why what Sergio read this morning is so Important because at the end of chapter 11, we're talking about men and women of whom the world was not even worthy. We're talking about amazing men and women of faith. And you would think that the author of Hebrews would say, So do what they did. Be like them. Think like they thought. But what did we just read this morning? The author of Hebrews says, So see those people? They're a great cloud of witnesses, but don't fix your eyes on them. Fix your eyes on Christ. He is the only one who has been perfectly faithful. All of these people in chapter 11 had great faith in a faithful God, but they were completely imperfect, faithless, time and time again. So I just want to plead with you and encourage your hearts this morning to, to be reminded that your faithlessness does not nullify grace. It can't, because grace is a gift. And that's why Paul even says in the book of 1 Timothy, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he can't deny himself. He gave us the gift and he can't go back on that gift. So don't look to these men and women. Don't look to the the quote-unquote good ones in the book of Judges. And don't stare at the bad ones like Samson, the quote-unquote bad ones, because we're just like him. Don't stare at him and say, well, he obviously must not be loved by God. No, don't do that. Remember that usefulness is not equal to faithfulness, but remember in your faithlessness as you're struggling that you have one who will hold you fast, who will never let you go. So in those moments when you're looking at your sin and you're staring inside, and I know that all of you do this, where you stare inside and you feel condemnation, it's good to look inward, to look at your sin. It's good to look there and to see it and to be angry at it and to have hate for it, just like Israel failed to have. But don't stay long at looking inside of you. Take a quick glance. Go, uh, no. And then stare at the Savior. Stare at the one who made an end to all of your sins. Stare at him and let his grace be a motivation to obey not to earn his love or to earn his favor, but because you have been given it in full without any ability to lose it. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you for this passage that yet again encourages our hearts, teaches us and instructs us. And now I pray that you would help us to stare upward, not inward, to stare at Christ who made an end to all of our sin to look at him, and to not look only inward at ourselves. But God, help us to enjoy the gospel, to press into grace, and to be changed by even now as we respond in song. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.